LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Kirby Surprise discussing his book, Synchronicity. If you missed part one, you can find it at the website legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com. The interview resumes with Kirby outlining some of the practical real-world applications of synchronicity. Beyond looking at religious fanaticism, there's some practical applications. Here in America, we have some of the most dysfunctional politics in the Western world. We have two political parties that have grown to think that nothing but being in power and their viewpoint is valid. And the liberals listen to the conservatives and, you know, think they are selfish, narcissistic, crazy people who are just greedy. And the conservatives listen to the liberals thinking they've lost their moral compass and that they will bring the downfall of organized civilizations through their lack of discipline. The thing is, these people on both sides are usually quite sincere. They believe it. And they look at each other and think the other side is delusional. What's actually happening is they see their political beliefs reflected back at them in the environment all the time. We all live in a cloud of synchronistic events that reflect back to us a universe that is the way we expect it to be, that reflects what we actually think, not the way it actually is. So we wind up with people with diverse belief systems talking past each other thinking that the person that sees their own reflections in their own mirror is either insincere or delusional in some way. In fact, they are doing the best they can to interpret a universe that is accommodating to them, that is reflecting back their fears and concerns. These reflections are always based on our psychodynamic processes. We see the world the way we've been taught to see the world. We see the world the way there's been an advantage for us to see the world. So, This following blindly of belief systems is an evolutionary advantage. Before religion, for instance, and I'm really not a fan of most organized religions at all. Before religions, we were feral. You know, with these twitchy critters out on the grasslands, naked with a spear, afraid of everything. Any little bugs, poisonous spider, snake, lion in the grass, disease, unseen something could take us or our families out at any moment. That kind of fear must have been absolutely crippling. In order to get moving, we pretended we understood how things worked. And I think a lot of religion is that way. It gives people the ability to put off their fear and apprehension and to believe that the universe operates in somewhat of an organized and predictable way. It gives people hope that survival is possible, but it's a defense mechanism. It allows us to lie to ourselves. 
And unfortunately, the story we tell ourselves becomes reflected in our environment. Because it's not just our conscious thoughts that synchronistic events reflect back to us. It's the full range of our unconscious. All of it. One of the reasons I wrote this book was because of the dozens of books that have been written on synchronicity. Most of them say synchronicity is your guide. You know, these events are the universe trying to, you know, give you signposts and follow these events, you know, to the greater good. It's absolutely not true. You're seeing yourself. These events have the same validity as dreams do, only they're reflected on the outside. Now, I love neuropsychology. You know, um, I'm basically, you know, a neurologist in a lot of ways. The part you think of as you that's listening to this is about the size of a walnut up on the front um, right side of your brain. Okay, the rest of these systems are automated. Everything that sees the environments takes these trillions of bits of information and forms it into a, an image on a stage in your memory of, rea of the reality around you. You know, all of this is to service your survival. You are the one who decides where you point your attention. We developed to do something impossible. When a hunter is out on the grasslands chasing an antelope, you're looking at miles of waving grass, patterns of light and shadow from the grass, from the clouds casting shadows, you know, the sunlight's changing, the weather's changing, all these different things are happening. You have a massive pattern recognition problem in front of you. Now, if you had to wait until you were absolutely sure that that was an antelope or a lion before you threw your spear, you would never eat because there's no way to be sure of anything a hundred percent and react to it instantly. So we, this conscious part of us, developed as a separate little supercomputer in the brain to guess. That's your job. Your job is not to be certain. It's not to act, you know, you know, with the knowledge that you understand everything. It's to find out when the pattern is close enough to something you recognize to act on it. When are you pretty sure that's an antelope and you throw your spear? And if you wait long enough, you don't eat. When do you run away when you think that pattern of brown in the grass is the mane of a lion? If you go over there and poke it to make sure, you're the one who becomes dinner. We guess. We do it all the time. One of the most telling signs of true delusions is the person sure. They're convinced. You can't argue mad at it. Personally, I think a lot of religious systems are like that. People, you know, if they're absolutely convinced that they're, they're right, they're delusional because we're not supposed to be right. Synchronistic events are a lot like this. You can never be absolutely sure of the meaning, and this is a good thing, because if you're absolutely sure, you know, and you hate your car, some, you, know, you might see a coincidence that says burn the car to the ground, you know, or do something stupid or quit your job and sit on the dock of the bay and something amazing will happen. Well, those are the things that you want. And yes, you have about a 6% chance of facilitating that outcome. But playing with synchronistic events beyond the joy of their creativity is about playing the odds. What are the odds that this message is right? You know, you sort of, you know, trust but tie up your camel with these events. 
Now, one of the most amazing things for me is that, you know, these events are fun. You know, uh, so many people give them religious or paranoid connotations that, you know, they think that this is a big cosmic and serious thing. And somewhat, you know, if you see the entire universe dancing to the rhythms of your thought, it can seem drastically important. It's not. You know, this is fun. In the modern world, we've more or less put behind us, you know, most aspects in day-to-day living of starvation and desperation. Yeah, we want a better job and, you know, we want to make more money, but the majority of us are base survival doing really well. That means that instead of simply using synchronicity to hunt antelope, you can have some fun with this. You know, you can look out into your environment and make it change and enjoy it and not have to be overwhelmed by it being any kind of unusual circumstance. In the light of what you said, a lot has been written, and I've certainly read a lot about how our ancestors in millennia gone by may have differed from us uh, physically and mentally. Do you think there was a time in the past when human beings were keenly aware of this ability? I think we've always been aware of this ability. One of the, one of the really just wonderfully goofy experiments that Ryan did on this was uh, he took chickens and he put them in a cage with a light bulb. Now, the light bulb was there for the warmth. You know, the bird needed the light bulb on to survive. And he connected the light bulb to a random number generator so that the bulb would only come on, you know, if that 3 to 6% synchronicity range was being activated by the chicken. And he found that birds and other animals do the same thing we do. They're organic. It's a life form. Everything does it. It's part of the nature of having neural tissue in the environment. And one of the really strange things that happened is, you know, they would leave these birds in these cages and run these experiments, you know, for weeks. So he went away one weekend, he came back, and the chicken had died for some reason over the weekend. And he went and checked the records of the random number generator. And at the moment that the bird died, the synchronistic events went back to random. So, you know, our ancestors have likely always been doing this. You know, as far as we can tell, you know, our first ancestors' rock carvings were magic. You know, if you look at the cave paintings in France, what you see is a shaman in a mask, dancing, pretending to be an antelope, and herds of bison, an antelope. They were doing magic. They knew that there was a connection between what they were thinking and what they were looking for and the events that occurred around them. That's a direct demonstration of them using this for survival reasons. Now, they weren't physicists. They weren't psychologically minded. They were hungry. So if they noticed a slight advantage when the shaman put on a mask and danced, then damn it, they were going to have the shaman put on a mask and dance because they had kids to feed. Very practical. They didn't need to know how it works. What the book I've written done is, for us, you know, obsessively curious modern people, is I show you how it works. Now, it's important, as you point out in the book, that we consider that our emotions create synchronistic events. And uh, you actually point out the core emotions of love, anger, fear and revulsion. Well, people will notice that only one of those is positive. And this kind of profound ramifications because most people don't have good control of their emotions or at least are not able to be the observer of their emotions beyond the ego. 
Yeah, it's very true. Um, you know, we're very physical creatures. Two of those emotions, anger and love, cause the organism to move towards things. You know, love to preserve things, you know, and be grateful for them. Anger to change things, you know, to change the environment. Fear and revulsion are different ways of moving away from something. So we're very physically oriented, just the way our neural tissue, we think in sensory signals. You know, um, anybody, for instance, that's, you know, God forbid anybody should do this, does hallucinogens and sees all these visual patterns, you know, on the inside, they're watching data processing. You know, they're seeing this supercomputer processing information in terms of senses, visual images, sounds, physical sensations, smells, and tastes. That's the way we think. Now, the downside is that, you know, the brain processes your experiences for decades. Uh, we can actually use fMRI scanners now to watch people's brains think. We can see the data transfers. And if someone is traumatized, we can see the pattern, you know, that the brain's working on, and we can actually watch things like PTSD over decades. Traumatic events, some people, their brains continue to try to associate and process them away for their entire lives. So, for instance, everybody knows somebody whose life is in perpetual crisis. Now, a lot of times, a psychologist, I find, for instance, you know, a kid is molested by a parent. Some, like, drastic cosmic disaster occurs to this person at a vulnerable stage. They may never be able to resolve that. And all the experience they have from that point on are trying to be associated and filed away relative to the trauma. Now, in order to function in the world, a lot of people that have had these kind of PTSD-causing experiences, they'll forget them. They'll push them out of conscious awareness, out of that little walnut-sized piece of the brain, into the automatic processes in the brain. Unfortunately, they don't go away. They're not sitting in a bucket somewhere. They're active data. They're massive mathematical formulas. You know, your brain is a miracle. You know, the brain you're using right now to listen to this has more computational power than every computer on the planet wired together. You have 200 billion neurons in your head. Each one of them is about as powerful as a laptop, and they're all connected to as many as 200,000 others. You know, what you're doing is a miracle. Everything you experience is present moment. People think memory is a tape recorder. It's not. Everything is current. It's all data, formulas that are actively floating and processing in the brain. You might have had the experience of having a hangout with friends of yours, and you start to reminisce about old times. And someone says, well, yeah, I remember you were wearing that green shirt, and she came up to you, and then he did this. And the person next to you, no, 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 no. He was wearing the shirt, and she didn't get here till later. And everybody's got a different version, and eventually maybe somebody will they'll all agree to a version. The reason everybody remembers it differently is because nobody's a tape recorder. Every experience you have changes your memories. It associates those formulas, those massive pieces of mathematics that are the neural signals, average into other mathematical neural signals in the brain and shape who you are in the present moment. Synchronistic events reflect all of this. Memories, fantasies, altered memories and fantasies, expectations, desires, hopes, it's all data signal. There's no difference between intellectual thoughts and emotion. It's all math in the brain, experienced in different ways. So when someone is traumatized, 
becomes unconscious and the foundations for the way they see the world. Say, for instance, again, a child is molested. It affects the entire way they will trust other people and view the world as a hostile place for the rest of their life. That's why it's so damaging. And once it goes unconscious, it continues to produce meaningful coincidences in their life. The trauma continues to be replayed in the environment around them. They tweak their environment to try to replay the events to try to resolve them. This is why you see people in the same damaging, destructive relationships over and over and over again. They're trying to find the formula and trying to solve it. They're reproducing it around them. And because we have this evolutionary gift, they're also giving a greater chance that the environment will present them with the circumstances to recreate the trauma they're experiencing. Be careful what you wish for. Now, there's a section in the book, I've really got to ask you about this, where you talk about um, thought forms. This was particularly interesting to me because I had a guest on last year, a guy called Neil Kramer, and we'd spoken about thought forms and about tulpas. And the pair of us discussed the idea that perhaps, well, a possibility rather, that most people in the world were actually tulpas. They were thought forms. And um, there was only a, a relatively small number of actual conscious, actual human beings here. Well, um, I've literally read every piece of literature made on thought forms, except for anything that may come out in the last two years. Um, my original theosophical bent, you know, was was here when I was like ten. Okay, so the actual theory of thought forms, the stuff that we derived out of, you know, Eastern religions, and that sort of changed in the Western ones. Um, supposedly, everything is a thought form. Now, it doesn't mean physical reality is not real. It is. It just means that physical reality is a kind of thought form. Um, as a psychologist, I see this elitist view that, we're, that some people are somehow special. Often, it's kind of a trap that bright people, legitimately spiritually minded people fall into. They think other people are unconscious. But here's the thing, okay? I evaluate intelligence and cognition for a living. And I see the full range from the occasional genius to the most dysfunctional, undifferentiated schizophrenics in the world, okay? With brain traumas, learning difficulties, psychodynamic traumas, PTSD, layered and layered and layered and layered. I got a really good view of what humans are, okay? And this is the amazing thing. I hear one person say another person is stupid, which essentially, if you're saying that there are elite people in the world and that everybody else is a thought form, you're basically saying, I'm smart, and these people are just dumbasses. Okay, that's just, that is the basic narcissism of it. Here's the thing. I sit across someone, average IQ is 100. So let's say I'm evaluating someone who's slightly developmentally disabled. He's got an IQ of, you know, maybe 75. And another psychologist says, well, you know, unfortunately, the guy is just not very bright. And they sort of tag him as stupid. Here's the amazing thing, okay? When you look at an object, Okay, your eye digitizes the thing in front of you. On the way to the brain, even, the optic nerve does math on the images. It color corrects, it changes the contrast, it contacts areas of your cortex to look for associative patterns to fill in pieces of the information that's not available. It does mathematics on the image that our current mathematicians are literally saying is impossible. That's how complex it is. 
that is the most common physiological function. Okay, we are miracles, miracles. How well a person is to able to remember eight items on a list or where they put their car keys or able to negotiate the minutia uh, you know, of Buddhist philosophy is a joke. Literally, that person in front of you who you think is perhaps stuck up, not too bright, not intellectually curious, and has no creative ability, you know, literally the brain in their head is the most fantastic supercomputer in the universe that we know of. People are miraculous. Consciously, the part that we think of as us, that we're so proud of, we don't have the conscious capacity of fully understanding the enzyme systems in any individual cell in any creature in the world. Okay, hubris, hubris. We're miracles, you know? True spirituality, in my opinion, and I have lots of opinions, has nothing to do with anything but connectedness. How connected are you? The physics in the book starts with something really simple, relatively, Einstein. He had one of the most profound spiritual minds of the 20th century. He expressed in mathematical and physical terms that there are no such thing as individual particles or objects. It's field physics, it's field strength. The particles in the matter around you are just local concentrations of the space. Space is an electromagnetic field, it's energy. You know, the laptop in front of me is condensed space. It's the same space as you are listening to this broadcast. You're innately connected. String theory is now telling us that there are inclusive dimensions. You know, we normally think of four dimensions, three of space, one at a time. Well, they solved unified field theory in the late 90s. There's 11 dimensions in physical reality, 11. Some of them are so small that their entire universe is crumpled into a particle. Some of them have more dimensions of time and space that are so inclusive they operate outside of time and space as well as in it, just like Jung's A-causal connecting principles. My studies of religion and philosophy say that these dimensions of physics that we're just now mathematically theorizing, not yet proved, but likely to be a good bet, they are consciousness. Now, these people that you walk around and look at the answer to the riddle of consciousness is actually very, very simple. Matter and energy is consciousness. People, us, the self-consciousness is an illusion in the brain. It's a bunch of self-referential computer loops. That's it. Now, that's a little disheartening at first when you want to survive as an individual. But when you realize that you are not separate from the people around you, literally your fields, your energy, is the same as theirs. There's no lack of connection. It comes harder to look at somebody and go, they're a dumbass. It becomes harder to look at somebody and say, well, they're not that insightful. Well, in fact, they're you. They are you. We're all connected. Some of these dimensions are connected to the point where even the individuality merges. This was Jung's point in the collective unconscious. Every mystical system, you know, beyond the religious dogma, all the mystics, the yogis, the shamans are saying the same thing. As you progress up the planes of consciousness, which I see as getting further and further up into the cortex in the brain, the lines of distinction between separation blur. So 
if you're a shaman and you're playing with thought forms on the astral plane, on some level, you're creating them. Yes, you create these things in your aura all the time. They are made of the matter and energy of the next set of dimensions up. They're physical things with extra dimensions and extra ranges. That just so happens that the ranges just above us are created out of what we consider emotional energy, and then mental energy, and then spiritual energy. Each level is more inclusive. The shaman on the lower astral believes that he's dealing with earth spirits, parts of people's lost souls, that they're separate things, and that you're manipulating the fruit and market. An advanced shaman, bordering on mysticism, say, on the top of the astral plane, bordering on the mental, realizes that what he's looking at is his own thoughts. That these are not separate creatures, separate identities, separate beings. These are parts of his own thoughts. The mystic, the yogi, had branches into true spirituality, realizes that we are all thought forms. We are all thoughts in a larger collective entity. And it's us. It's not some frightening, individual, depriving, dissolution-oriented kind of thing. You find out that they are you. And this is not only the basis for understanding in a lot of ways how these synchronistic events are possible, it's the most rational reason for compassion, for empathy that there is. Because these people that you're judging, they're you. Now, neurologically, the cool correlation to this is, you don't experience the real world. That little piece of walnut up in your head, that's you, has no direct contact with the outside reality whatsoever. Everything you experience is constructed in areas of memory behind the frontal lobe. There's a stage, literally. Like Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. Everything you experience is being constructed in sort of a matrix computer in your head. It's taking the sensory data and it's building an environment for you. What you are in right now is a hallucination. It's the same area of the brain that you dream with. It's the same area of the brain that schizophrenics hallucinate with. You are absolutely 100% hallucinating your reality right now. Yes, the environment's real, but the version you get to experience is constructed by your brain. You are living neural activity, and you are deleting parts of it and enhancing parts of it right now. This miracle means that when you see another person, what you are experiencing is a brain construct that is a cartoon representation, a vastly simplistic form of the person that's actually out there. Some people have no empathy because their brain can't do that part of the programming. You know, they cannot recognize the commonality. You can recognize and empathize with people because you've built a model of the person in your head. You are literally relating to a computer construct that is simulating what that person may be feeling and what they might want. And you, too, are a program running on that stage. Your sense of self, your memories, your experiences, all the special things are a construct, a computer program running in the same stage. This means when you hate someone, when you differentiate against them, when you attack someone, when you judge them, what you're judging is your internal image of them. You are literally attacking part of your neurology. It's a wonderful, you know, excuse for being compassionate with people, you know, with not being judgmental and trying to do the best for everybody because what you're experiencing ultimately, undeniably, is yourself. And I believe 
That's the basis of spirituality. Not thinking that one group of people is more special or evolved than another. One of the most fundamental things in all of this is that we, as you've pointed out, we have a choice in this. And towards the end of the book, you speak a little bit about exploring and adventuring with actually using this in our day-to-day lives. And you you insert a caveat, uh, which is really that you you can't go back. You know, you can't plug back into the matrix uh, once you've looked upon the matrix, as it were. Communicating with yourself and others on a level that recognizes all as one, as you just explained, is extremely important. But you, you actually... No, more than caveats, actually, to, in the exercises section of the book, you actually insert warnings and you steer people through. It's quite a long process, but it's basically your analogy as a bus journey going through the different stages of this. So perhaps uh, the closing section, you could speak um, about that. All right. So we're taught in this society to value linear empirical thinking. And when you take the child, as I mentioned before, and you discount their experiences with synchronistic events, Um, You're programming their brains to ignore them. If you tell your brain that these events are not real, not important, it will take you at your word and it will filter them out and you won't see them. I've been in rooms with people who are, their thought patterns are talking to them through TV sets and all these wild coincidences are happening around them and they have no clue. You know, and I can like actually sort of, you know, almost telepathically read some of the stuff they're going through and they're not tuned in at all. But it develops in stages, often for people. So, uh, you know, like the guy I talked about who had been diagnosed with schizophrenic, the first stage for people is usually, you know, they're clueless. Then they see some event and they clued into the fact that it's possible. And they go, they will often go frantically searching for an explanation. Now, what they find is any version of some mythology, basically, usually that reflects their own psychodynamic, you know, life and development. And they will, for a while, think that they are being subjected to synchronistic events. It's an outside source. Uh, There may be some paranoia involved in this. They may feel picked on, singled out, selected. Eventually, you know, they come to realize that, you know, they're maybe looking at reflections. You know, they see some of their thoughts. At this point, the mythology kind of breaks down. So if someone believed... uh, UFOs were super technological UFO aliens were arranging their environment uh, and that they were going to be picked up or some nonsense. What will happen is eventually they'll start seeing cracks in the mythology. You know, things don't make any sense. You gradually work through some of your defense mechanisms and you don't need them anymore. You get freaked out and amazed long enough. It becomes more like day to day. And so you start to realize that the mythologies aren't necessarily true. You're looking at statements that you know don't come to pass and you start to realize that you know well what am i what are they making fun of me and then eventually you kind of realize well no i'm seeing thoughts i'm seeing my own thoughts so there may be a a period of time where it's like well who is mocking me by reflecting my thoughts back at me through the environment eventually by hanging out with enough you figure out there's nobody there there's no outside entity at all you know you're looking at a mirror When you realize that, there's usually some considerable terror involved. There's this sort of terrible freedom if you're seeing your thoughts reflected. You know, oh my God, am I going to really mess up my life? Am I going to cause some disaster to happen? And my deepest fear is going to come true. Well, you know, people's deepest fears do come true, but they come true as synchronistic events like dreams. You know, they don't actually happen. They just may scream at your face that they're going to happen. You know, you're going to die. You're going to do this. 
the world's gonna, you know, and eventually after none of that stuff happens, you realize that you're just going to a horror movie and scaring yourself because, you know, people enjoy their emotions. That's why we have horror movies. You know, people pay to be scared. After people are done frightening themselves silly for a while, undergoing what Jung called the dark night of the soul, you calm down. You realize you're looking at reflections. There's no harm in them. They don't cause anything. And then, you know, if you are lucky, you go, hey, you know something? This could be fun. And then you start focusing your thoughts on specific patterns that you choose. And in doing this, they start to reflect back. And you gradually gain the ability to bounce thoughts by choice off the environment. Now, one of the dangers before this, you know, back a few stages, is that people are evolved to think in terms of other people. That stage you have in your mind that you create reality on is full of people. That's how you think. You think animistically. Our ancestors believed everything was alive. Now, they were right. Everything's not consciously aware. But matter and energy are alive. They are consciousness. And you can construct on your little sage in your head people that will talk in through the synchronistic events. One of the uh, exercises in the book is talking to God, which is real simple. You know, you pretend you're talking to God and it talks back, you know, and it talks back in whatever you expect it to be. You know, if you're a Christian, it'll talk back as a Christian God. If you're a Islamic, it'll talk back as Allah. If you're Buddhist, it becomes a bodhisattva. But ultimately, you're talking to a thought form on your own neurological stage. Now, getting back to your question about thought forms briefly, when I said that we think in terms of sensory data, we're juggling massive amounts of information that are tiny bits of sensation, memory, visual image, hearing, tastes. They're formulas, but they are physical things in our brains. That's what thought forms are. They're manifested externally as real objects, but they represent those things. If I want to create a thought form to change the events in an area or, you know, go doing something, you know, alchemical in the environment, you know, or play with them, the thing I construct represents a set of emotions and thoughts. You know, that's what they are. And neurologically in our heads, that's what our data processing is. We're manipulating thought forms. Okay. It's all data processing. So, Realizing that, you get to design personalities in the environment if you want them. You can talk to the environment like it's a CIA conspiracy. You can talk to the environment like it's your deceased ancestors trying to help you out. You can talk to the environment like it's Betty Boop, and it will talk back to you in that pattern of personality because ultimately the meanings are constructed on that neurological stage in your head. So eventually... If you like come to the end of your bus journey, you know, out of, out of sort of, you know, ignorance and confusion, you realize that this is the ability to be the playwright of your environment, you know, without manipulating people, you know, without doing things to anybody else, you are creating your own mythology, as Joseph Campbell would put it. In the book, there's a explanation in physics for how this is happening. You are not manipulating your environment. There are an infinite amount of probabilities around you. This is now the actual conservative theory of physics, an infinite amount of probable universes in the space with you right now. You're moving through them. Your thoughts, your emotions create thought forms. They create gravitational effects, and you move through the probabilities. The thing that never made sense about magic and synchronicity before 
you know, this book was that you're manipulating the environment and that would require you to be changing the entire universe to do these things. You're not manipulating the environment. You're manipulating your position within the infinite probabilities. The passage of time itself is going from one probable universe to the other. These membranes, universes, are probably separated by the smallest possible quantum particle, space, which means that in any millimeter, there's an uncounted trillions number of them, and that time progresses because we move from one to the next normally. Nothing unusual about it. In Star Trek and science fiction, when they run out of ideas, they have people jump to alternate universes to meet other versions of themselves. Well, you're actually doing that. That's normal. You're passing through trillions of alternative probabilities every instant. Each one of them has the potential of lining up with what you're thinking and feeling and producing a co-occurrence event, a synchronistic event where your travel through probability makes the internal state the same as the external state and a synchronistic event happens. There is no energy required. There is no manipulation required. You don't change anybody or anything. So if you want to play Gandalf in Lord of the Rings or Luke Skywalker in your environment and, you know, suddenly have kids running by with lightsabers and having people, you know, asking you questions and reversing their pronouns for some reason, like Yoda accidentally, like you're in the Star Wars universe, you absolutely can do that. And synchronicity will joyously play along with you and you are not changing the reality of any of those people. You are not altering physical events in any way. You are now positioning yourself amongst the infinite probabilities, three to five percent by your own choice. People always do this. This is not a skill. It's not something you develop. This is normal. Everybody does this. Unfortunately, sort of once you know this, your universe has kind of changed forever. Now you can tone it up or down. You can ignore synchronistic events, get bored with them essentially, and they'll stop manifesting as intensely. If you focus on them and expect them to happen, think about them, your brain will start showing them to you again. You have the natural ability to tune them up or down in intensity, to choose their content, and to choose what emotions they reflect back with you. You are the playwright for your own stage. And that, in my opinion, along with the ultimate realization that, you know, we are kind of unified, is where synchronistic events lead. And it's the, you know, the opportunity and a challenge. It is a freedom. It is a choice. It is not a responsibility. It is a gift. You know, and, you know, being cognizant of it gives you the choice of playing with it or not. I've had times where I've turned this off for months at a time because to distract it. You know, too much work to do, too much family stuff to do, there's kids to raise, there's, you know, stuff to do. But as a way of knowing what's going on with you internally, of being able to watch your environment, to choose an enjoyable theme, and then listen to the data processing of your unconscious in the context of the outside world, it's fun, you know, and I think it's beneficial. And that's what I was trying to get across to people in the book, that, you know, you can have a great time with this. Just don't fool yourself, you know, just know what it is for what it is. You know, this is a mirror. Kirby, your book, Synchronicity, is widely available, just all the usual outlets, as we say. But perhaps uh, in closing, you'd like to just share details of your website, anything else you'd like to put out there? 
Sure. Uh, the website is um, howsynchronicityworks.com. You know, people can check in there. There's a few basic stories and such. Also, you know, you can post there and contact me, and I'll respond to people who email me. Uh, you know, if things are getting weird or you just want to know something or say hey, I respond. Uh, you know, the book is available on Amazon. It's, you know, Barnes & Nobles. It's available in electronic versions. You know, it's around. Um, and I, I truly hope that uh, people have some fun with it. It was an attempt to have people who may be confused or having some anxiety about these events realize that, you know, they're really, they can calm down and just sort of enjoy it. You know, it, there's a way out of the labyrinth. And mostly it's to relax and laugh at it. Well, Kirby, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>